Let's stand this morning and honor the Lord as we read from Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the declaration of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 3. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the declaration of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, a familiar passage probably to those of you that spent time in children's church, and maybe it's been a long time since you've heard this passage read, but it is a powerful passage that has so much to say to us in this day and age, and in every day for each Christian as they have lived through the struggles of this world. But this passage begins with Nebuchadnezzar setting up a, a tall golden totem of sorts, 90 feet tall and 10 feet wide. 
The image seems to have some relation to the dream that was interpreted him from before, but it's important as we read the Old Testament to understand that when we go from one chapter to the next, it's not the next day. There's a lot of time that passes in the Old Testament, and you can go and turn one page of the Old Testament and have decades of time passed. And so we're not exactly told how much time is between chapter 2 and chapter 3, but it's reasonable to think that there is a significant passage of time between the two. But the scene before us this morning is that there is this image, this, this huge golden image, narrow and tall, that had to have taken some time to have made and to have been set up. And all of this situation that we have before us, this, this large plain cleared, the plain of Dura, Clearly, they've set up this statue in this plain so that it's a large open place where all these people, this international gathering, if you will, can meet up. And who are the people in this place? Well, the people are, it mentions it twice, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials from all the provinces. So remember that Babylon is this, this large and growing empire, and they're bringing more and more people, different types of people, conquered people, into this nation. And what is happening here is we have a multinational, multilingual gathering of conquered peoples. And the point of all this is a test of loyalty to the king. I'm going to bring all these people in from different languages, different places, conquered, brought in, and now we're going to see. I'm going to put this thing up, and you are going to kneel to it because I tell you that you're going to kneel to it, and anybody that doesn't kneel to this thing is going to die. And that's the fourth part of this scene, which is the furnace. So you've got the king set up wherever he is. You've got this big golden totem, this giant plane full of all these officials and people. Think of like an inauguration or something when all the people gather together, all these important officials. And then over here to the side as a little motivation is you've got this giant burning furnace with smoke coming off of it. And anybody that doesn't bow when the band starts playing, you're going to get thrown into the furnace. So how's that for motivation? So the first round of this the music plays. Everybody bows down except for three people. Now, how would you like to be that group of people in a large flat plane where everybody can be seen who's bowing and who's not bowing, that there's three guys standing up when everybody else is bowing down? And it says in verse 8 that there were people that were out for them. In verse 8, there was a certain Chaldeans or a group of people that were native to that land that come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. To accuse someone with malice is an important word, a descriptive word. It's with intention or desire to do evil. These people desired to undermine and destroy these three friends. They had it in for them because these three friends, Daniel, by the way, is not mentioned in this excuse me, in this passage, and we don't exactly know where he is, but he's not faulted for not being here. He's just not mentioned, so we don't know where he is. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there. And we know that from the beginning of what we've been looking at here in Daniel, that they are set apart. And they're set apart because all the way from the very beginning of their time and being taken as exiles into Babylon, they were resolved not to defile themselves and to remain set apart in their Judaism, in their worship of God, which, by the way, was a worship of God that had no image to it. 
which was very foreign to these people. They all worshiped God that had images, but not these people. They ate differently, they looked differently, they spoke differently, but they excelled in their learning and they were able to do things that nobody else was able to do. And even though they were exiles from a foreign land, they had been promoted over so many people that were native to that country. And you know what that invokes, which is great jealousy. Who are these people to come in and take my place? That was the position that I wanted, and I didn't get it because this guy came in and bypassed me for it, and so I'm looking for a way that I can destroy this person or these people. But there was nothing that they could bring against them except for the way in which they worshipped their God. And so they think now that they have found a way as they stand alone among those that are bowing. And so in verse 12b, you see their, their accusation. These men pay no attention to you, O king. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship your golden image. You, O king, are the man. You are the most important, most powerful person on earth, and they ignore you. Are you going to stand for that? In a way, they're provoking the king that he can't not respond to this. And so these friends, I want to see this morning, I want you to see this morning, that they were godly and they were courageous. Together, these two things are very, very important. The first thing about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is their godliness. Their courage doesn't mean anything without their godliness first. Well, their godliness begins in this situation that they, that they believe in, they fear, and they obey the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the unseen living God. They know that from Mount Sinai, out of the fire and the thunder and written upon stone by the very hand of God and brought down off the mountain and proclaimed to them by Moses were these commands. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. These were the extremely clear commands of the Lord, which are the opposite of the situation that we have here. People being called to bow down to another God, to serve another God that is represented by a carved, graven image of gold. If they are to go in this direction, they will not be godly people. They will be directly against what the Lord has called for them to do. What Nebuchadnezzar requires of them was expressly forbidden. They knew of the wrath of God towards the people of Israel when they came down, when Moses came down off of Sinai and they're there worshiping this golden calf in the way that the Lord judged them. Because what I want you to see this morning, that in godliness and in worship, God must be worshiped according to truth. He must be worshiped according to who he really is and how he has prescribed that we worship him. The worship of God must be according to what he requires of us. We see this in the earliest chapters of the Bible between Cain and Abel. When God calls for these two brothers to worship him and one brother brings a, a pile of vegetables because that's what he grew. And the other brother brings a lamb. And God says to Cain, I, I don't want your vegetables. I'm not looking for You need to bring a lamb. This is what I require of you to bring. And you know how the story goes. If you've read the early chapters of Genesis, Cain, instead of changing and taking the opportunity of grace that God gives to him to change his direction and bring what God requires, instead he explodes in anger towards his brother. Who is this brother of mine? 
I, I hate him and I'm going to kill him. And he does. And he goes out in rage and murders his brother instead of bringing to God what God requires. And this is the picture of what we see recurring over and over and over throughout the Bible. This is exactly what we see happening here. These men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are worshiping God, are standing for what they must stand for, to worship God as he requires. And these other men hate them for it. And instead of changing their ways, they seek to destroy them. They, they seek to literally murder them and get rid of them because of the way that they worship the Lord God in truth. It's absolutely imperative that we understand that in the worship of Almighty God, we are not the ones bringing whatever we want to bring to God and expecting Him to like it. Instead, what we do is we bring what God requires for us to bring, and we worship Him in the way that He calls for us to worship Him. But this day and age is full of people that say, if I am authentic, no matter what I bring or how I bring it or what I say, then God must accept my worship because it's authentic from my heart. But authenticity is only one part of worship, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But truth comes before authenticity. And so we must understand who God is. Another great example of this, which I've mentioned already, is the golden calf at the base of Mount Sinai. The people got tired of waiting on Moses, and they got tired of an unseen God. And so they said, well, let's, let's collect together all of our necklaces and earrings, and we'll melt them down, and we'll make this golden calf. And it says there that they worshipped this calf as the God who brought them out of Egypt. And so they were sort of there, but they were terribly off track because they were doing what God forbid them to do. And so as the people make progress, we get down to the book of Isaiah, where we have a place where the people are doing what God calls them to do in a ritualistic right way. They're going and making the right offerings. They're saying the right things. They're doing the right things. But the authenticity of their heart has drifted away. And so this is where we see we can get all these things lined up right, but if our heart is not in it or our heart is wicked, God sees the heart, and this is not good either. So Isaiah 1, 12 through 20 says this, When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. Your new moon and your appointed feast my soul hates. I have, you have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil, your deeds, uh, your evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. So he speaks to them here of the, of the situation of doing right things, but with a heart that is evil and has drifted far away from the Lord. And the Lord looks on their corrupt and evil hearts, and he is not pleased by empty things done for him. 
And this carries all the way down to the day of the Pharisees with Jesus, where Jesus looks at the Pharisees, a people that are extremely religious in everything that they do, in their dress and in their purposes and in their workings in and out of the temple, and he points at them and he calls them whitewashed tombs, that they look fantastic on the outside, but inside they are full of death because they know nothing of the love of Christ and they reject Jesus in his coming. And so Jesus spoke directly about this in John chapter 4, this idea of worshiping in spirit and in truth, and that we must have both truth and rightly worshiping God for who he is, but it also must be done truly from the heart and by the spirit. In John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, it says this, But the hour is coming and now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so it is with us that we must be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three friends understood that their, their worship must be in truth and it must be in spirit. That they cannot say, oh, I worship the Lord, but today I'm just going to bow down to this because it breaks truth. But we know that in the midst of who they are, that their hearts are earnestly and authentically passionate about the Lord. We've seen this for weeks in talking about these young people. And so they fuse together spirit and truth, and they stand in courage. Courage is a virtue. It's a virtue that's lacking in our day because I believe that courage is something that comes to us by God's Spirit, that God gives us the strength to do things that we could never do in and of ourselves because we're just too weak. And we try and we try, but we fail and we fail. And I think it's part of the fruit of the Spirit of self-control that the Lord God gives us a, a control over ourselves to be able to do and say things that are courageous that we could never do in and of ourselves. But when we seek to follow after the Lord, He strengthens us to not run and hide, but instead to stand and to stand firm and to stand with love, but with strength. And so these men knew they were targeted. They had to have. You know when you've got a target on your back and people are after you. But they stood against literally the most powerful person in the world. They had long been in this government. And they knew that this plane was being set up and this statue was being erected. And they saw the furnace being built. And they knew exactly what was coming on this day of testing. And you know they had prayed before this, God help us not to fail at this important moment. And I believe every one of us in life, sometimes things hit us without, without us knowing it. But there are other things that we see coming a long way away. And we know that there's going to be a day where we're going to have to answer and we're going to have to stand either for Christ Jesus or we're going to fold. And so they stand at the cost of their lives. They do not run, they do not beg, they do not take up arms, but instead they walk by faith. They literally commit themselves to the Lord. God help us, here we are. And so I think in their godliness and in their courage, it is worth looking at the the way in which these men lived according to the way that they had position in the government. You could call it compromise, but I'm not sure that's the right word. It's the way in which they choose where to stand and where not to stand, what to live with and what not to live with. And we're all making those decisions every day. What are we going to live with and what are we not going to live with? They were all high-level government leaders. 
well-established over years of service. And by all indication, they were considered valuable in their government service. They were earnest. They were productive. They seemed to be keeping the command of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 28, 7, which says this, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And it seems that those that were maliciously against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could not find any other way to undermine them or get at them because they were doing a good job in the other things that they were doing. And yet when it came to this thing which they could not ever compromise on because it was a clear line in the sand, they thought that they had them. So in verse 13, they come before Nebuchadnezzar and it says that Nebuchadnezzar enters into a furious rage. Same similar thing we saw in chapter 2. This guy is given to anger. And he calls them up before them. But he does not immediately throw them into the furnace. He gives them a second chance, unlike what he said before. And he says, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? That's the end of verse 15. He thinks that there is no one more powerful than him. And he does not believe in their God. And he knows that this golden thing that he just made, he made with his own hands and nobody praying to this thing. It's not going to do anything for anybody. And so he thinks that their God is pretty much the same way. That only he is the one who can act and who will deliver you out of my hands. But as we're going to see next week, Nebuchadnezzar is about to have an encounter with the true and living God. And he's going to see a God that he knew nothing about before this. He had been exposed to in the interpretation of a dream, but clearly had not uh, allowed it to take root in his heart. And he had passed on into continuing idolatry. But the composed answer of these young men is one of the greatest answers in all the Bible. As far as someone responding to a, a life or death situation like this. It is a statement of incredible faith. And I want to remind you that it's a statement that is made not at a high point of religion or a high point of godliness in the nation of Israel. When is this incredible statement made in verses 16 through 18 made? It's made when the kings, the faith of the kings of Israel and Judah had failed. It's made when all the nation had been so wayward and so ungodly that the Lord had driven the people out into exile. It's made at a time when the temple had been looted and it appears in all intents and purposes from looking at the nation of Israel that the, the worship of the Lord God might be extinguished forever for loss of true-hearted followers. It's in this unbelievably low point that these young men make this statement because they have not given up in their faith in the Lord God. So what do they say? They don't know what God is going to do for them, but they know what God requires of them. And so they say to the king, we have no need to answer you. That's a powerful statement. As what that means is there's an authority higher than you. And we answer to the authority that is above you. You don't think there's any authority above you, but there is. And so we don't need to answer you in this. But our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. I love that word serve. That the way that they characterize themselves, it's the same way that Paul always characterized himself. As a servant of the Lord. 
Do you see yourself that way in your life? Do you see yourself as a, as a servant of the Lord God? That if you were to characterize yourself quickly in, in a few words, would it be that I am a servant of the Lord, that my life is lived in service to God? That's how they understood themselves. And when they had to answer for themselves, they declared themselves to be servants of the Lord who is able to deliver them. Lives lived under the supernatural power of God. They knew the past. They had been raised to follow the Lord. They knew how God had destroyed the Egyptians by plague, how he had parted the Red Sea to make a way for his people, how he had provided for them by manna in the desert, how he had given victory to Gideon, how he had enabled David to defeat Goliath, how he had delivered Israel from Sennacherib when they were surrounded, how he had rained fire from heaven according to the prayer of Elijah, all these things. And now here they are at this moment in history. God can act, but if not, we will not serve you. And so they know that God may not act, and if so, they're trusting in the Lord God for eternal life. That this, if this is their last moment, they are ready to face that last moment because of their faith in the Lord God. They understood that the purpose of life is to serve God's glory. To act in a way that would lose the object of life in order to preserve their life, they gained nothing from that. Let me say that again. They understood that the object of life was to live and serve the glory of God. And if they were to deny the Lord and bring disgrace upon His name, what was the purpose of going on living when you have denied the purpose of living? Again, Jesus speaks to this exact same thing multiple times in the Gospels, but I'll read for us from Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his own soul? So what would it do for them if they denied the Lord God in that place and denied who the Lord was and lost their life and thinking that they were gaining it. Instead, they understand what Christ is teaching long before Christ came on the scene, that it is better to lose your physical life that you might gain eternal life in entrusting yourself to God. May each of our lives be marked by faith and courage and godliness as these young men were. But I think it's very important to apply this particular situation. How, it is very, very unlikely that any of us are going to be called to bow down to a golden <laughs> idol. It's just uh, not going to happen in the country that we live in. So what is the application of these things? Because this story is of tremendous application to every single generation of Christians because every generation of Christians has something within their culture that is being used by Satan to press Christians away from the truth and cause them by fear to turn away from godliness and to forsake right worship. Something requiring godliness and faith and courage to withstand and without godliness and without faith and without courage that they will not be able to withstand such a thing. I believe very much that in our day and age, this is certainly the sweeping reversal of sexual morality in our day. The passionate and violent abortion culture that we are surrounded by 
the all-encompassing LGBTQ agenda that we see every day, the transgender passion to redefine our lives. This has been building for many years, similar to this plane that these guys are coming out on. They see this ungodly king. They know it's coming. We have seen these things building for much time, but now it is upon us. It is clearly against God's will. It's an issue that is not a a debatable thing. If we accept the Bible as authority, then this is clearly against God's will. It is writ large in the scriptures. But you know as well as I do that when the music sounds, you had better bow the knee. And if you don't bow the knee, the cost for not bowing the knee to these things is becoming increasingly more difficult. You had better say the right words, accept the right changes, and toe the line. Or you will face shame and coercion, violence, perhaps a great financial cost, and I believe that this cost will, be, will get greater and greater and greater as this increases in our culture. But we must face our times, I believe, in the same clear-minded way that these three young men faced their time. That we must start with godliness. We must know and we must understand what God's will is through understanding what God's word says. There's much that could be said about this, but I want to read to you something that I was reminded of in my devotions this past week from Psalm 19. Psalm 19, 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Those are some powerful statements about God's word. If you are confused about the time that you live in, you need to go back to God's word. God's word will instruct your heart and guide you and help you to understand who the Lord is and what he requires of us. And the more time that you spend in prayerfulness in God's word, you will begin to see that God's rules are not for our oppression. They are righteous and good altogether, making wise the simple, enlightening the heart, and bringing life and goodness instead of oppression. And so godliness, we begin with godliness. Seek after the Lord through his word. And as we do this, we believe. We have to be prayerful and humble resolved in our faithfulness that once we have understood the basic things that God has taught us about who he is and what he requires of us, we need to understand that we will have to hold on to those things. Never in any generation of Christianity has it been easy to hold on to the things of God. There's always been a great tide of evil pressing against God's people to take them away from the things of the Lord. We must, by faith, entrust ourselves and our future to the Lord that we might walk in His ways in peace, in kindness, in love, but also in courage. And so the way I would like to end this morning is just a a prayer. I've taken this and sort of translated it from the Old English to English that is more intelligible to us. But one of the commentaries I've been enjoying going through Daniel is Calvin's commentary, written in Geneva in 1561. And these things were just as real back then as they are right now. But this is his prayer. It's interesting, at the end of his commentaries, at the end of the commentary in this passage, there was this prayer written in the commentary. So I'm going to read it for you because it was very impactful to me. 
Grant, Almighty God, since we see the wicked carried away by their powerful, impure desires, while they are so puffed up with arrogance, may we learn true humility. And so subject ourselves to you that we may always depend upon your word and always attend to your instructions. When we have learned what worship pleases you, may we constantly persist unto the end and never be moved by any threats or dangers or violence from our position, nor drawn aside from our course. By, preserving, by persevering in obedience to thy word, may we show our cheerful readiness and obedience until you acknowledge us as your sons and daughters. We are gathered to that eternal inheritance which you have prepared for all the members of Christ thy Son. Amen. That's a powerful prayer of God, help us to know who you are and strengthen us to not give up in serving you in the day that we live in. It's a prayer that I think we all need to hear. I would ask us to pray this together. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, we love you this morning. And we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for the example in Scripture of young men from a long, long time ago that had a passion to serve Almighty God, and they were unwilling to give up in this service. They had studied your word, they understood who you were, and they understood what your will was, and they were committing themselves to you in faith and trusting you literally with their own lives. And I pray, Father, that you would help us in this same way, that you would help us, Lord, to seek after godliness, that your spirit would draw us in a desire to know more of who you are and that we would love your word and that we would open your word, and in your word we would find life, and we would find a clear understanding of who God is, and that we would firmly set our feet upon that foundation, and that by your Holy Spirit you would give us courage, Lord, to be Christian people in a non-Christian world, that we would be filled with love and kindness and gentleness, as were these men, but that we would stand firm in what it means to honor Christ Jesus as Lord Help us never to compromise on those things which must never be compromised on. Help us to always bring to you worship that is according to what you would have us to bring. And we pray, God, that you would be pleased with us as a people. Strengthen us. Watch over us. Call those to yourself that do not know you as Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.